friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. We are pressing on in our series on the isms. As Tim Keller would say, there's seven isms uh, that are causing church decline. You've heard Martin and I, we've talked about moralism, we've talked about dualism, individualism. Uh, and today is one that I'm fairly certain when I get to it, you will go, that's a made up word. I think it is. Uh, but we'll get, when we get there, you'll, you'll hear it and you'll go, mm, I don't know. But I'm calling this tearing down hostility, building up peace. And even if the word is made up, the phenomenon isn't. Uh, and I'm really excited to preach on this today. And I, I said to the guys this morning as they were warming up, this is one of those sermons, I may offend every person in the room. And I feel pretty good about that. Because uh, then I'm leaving to go to Oklahoma. So... Uh, if I offend you, it's not intentional, but maybe we'll rattle some categories this morning. And so I'm willing, I hope it's a good risk. Um, but we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 22 this morning. So you can always follow along on the screens behind me or listen along as I read out loud. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. And he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who are the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, which he put the hostility to death. He came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the one Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's own household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as our cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, thank you that you preserved this word. Uh, May my words this morning be beautiful, true, and right. May it honor you, and may it encourage us to love you and to love our neighbor a little bit better. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Uh, When I was in seminary, I took one class uh, called... Uh, the role of women or how women minister or something like that. And I thought, you know, this is pretty good. I have 120-hour THM. I'm about to go be a women's minister. I've never even been a part of a women's ministry. I should take a class. So I go to the class, and I remember one day the teacher writes up on the whiteboard. She writes women on the left, men on the right, and puts like a big T chart and goes, okay, how do women lead? Give me adjectives for how women lead. So everybody starts calling out things. And it became very clear to me that I was going to be quiet. And then she comes over to the side, and she goes, okay, how do men lead? And she writes it all down. And when it was all said and done, on the women's side were words like hospitality, servanthood, kind, gentle. On the men's side, it was bold, courageous, aggressive, assertive, protein, monster trucks, ha, ha. No, I didn't say that, but that was the vibe. And And I sat there, and I thought, you know, I have a question. Um... I feel like y'all just called me a man because if I were to describe my leadership style, I look like the right side. And I'm not sure where Deborah, who was the leader of all of Israel, who went into war and fought Sisera and his 700 chariots, I'm not sure where she would fall. And probably most importantly, I'm not sure Jesus would fall on the right side either. I think he would actually fall somewhere in the middle. And what I expected was a really healthy convo Uh, And what I met with was actually a lot of vitriol from one woman in particular. Uh, And then a lot of people lined up behind her. It was like ducks got in formation. I was like, oh, here we go. And and she said to me, you know, you're you're wrong. And and the way you lead then isn't appropriate to biblical womanhood. I was like, okay, (laughs) tell me more. And she goes, you know, our physical bodies reveal this T-chart. I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, women, we're, and she touches her chest, and she goes, we're soft. And men are hard. And I was like, we're at seminary. Most of the men here lift books, not weights. (laughs) Secondly, there could be a woman in this room with a mastectomy. There could be women in this room for a whole host of reasons that don't actually now feel like you just represented them. Also, really, our physical bodies reveal our personality. Come on. Like, you can't be serious with this. But I just thought, you know, this is... This, is, this moment that I'm having in seminary is actually one of the, and I, I mean this, thousands of conversations I've had in my lifetime as a Christian where I've been told I'm not quite the right mold for what it means to be a faithful Christian woman. I'm not kidding when I tell you thousands of conversations or conversations people have told me. I'll never forget being at the, the mega church I worked at before this. We were doing a huge event. It was like a big membership thing, and I had a backwards baseball cap on. It was I was also in a, sh- in a t-shirt, a tank top, that said, I love country meowsic with a cat strumming a country guitar. And then I had, I, it was tank top, and then I had like a, a leather vest on. So I'm not sure I was trying to press anybody with that outfit. And I had a backwards baseball cap on, and she walked up to me, took the cap off my head, threw it, and said, you'll never get a man looking like that. And I was like, well, good thing I'm not here for that. Go get my hat. She did not go get my hat. Um, and, the, and the reality is, is like telling you all those stories. When I tell, I'm, not t- I'm not kidding when I tell you thousands of moments like that. And I know I'm not alone because I have this conversation with other men and women who have been told, whether overtly 
or indirectly that they just don't quite match with the biblical view of fill in the blank. I'm not quite the biblical woman. I'm not quite the biblical man. I'm not quite the biblical wife, mom, daughter, whatever it is. And this thing that I'm talking about, this way of telling people you don't quite match, Tim Keller calls it enculturationism. I I know he made that word up. I know he did. Because every time I typed in my word doc, it put a red squiggly. But he says there's this habit that we have of taking our culture, our preferred cultural preferences, and making them the biblical norm. And he says this is one of the isms that's continuing to cause the decline of the evangelical church. He says enculturationism is where you take your cultural preferences, and he puts in parentheses, and, and make no mistake, they are just preferences, and you place moral absolutes on them as if they're badges of honor. My cultural preferences is the way. This is the morally right way of doing it. And if you do it this way, you get a badge of honor. You're a little bit better at showing up as a biblical woman or a wife or whatever. And Tim points out the real danger is when we take our cultural preferences and we say this is the biblical preference. This is the way we do womanhood, manhood, wifedom, whatever it is. And so he gives examples of this. He says, I want to give examples of where I see this show up in the church, which is causing the decline. He gives this one that I just gave you. He talks about extreme gender roles. He goes, of course there's gender roles in the Bible, but when we take them to the extreme, he says, we see this often in churches where women are taught to be quieter. Loud women are a little bit suspicious of character. That women are taught to be more subservient and more passive, and they're taught that they're more desirable to a man if they show up in that way. And he says the way that we do it to men is men are taught to be assertive and that they have to make more money than the woman that they're dating. And it's assumed that they must love hunting and guns. Because if you just look at the way that we invite men to show up to the church, they have to kill what they're going to eat. He also says it shows up in nationalism. I know what this holiday is. But he says we place the United States in place of Israel and we say we put America before kingdom and being an American just is a little bit more right than being from Guatemala, Uganda, wherever you fill in the blank. He says it shows up in family structures that we say the biblical model for family is dad, mom, and 2.5 kids. Dad must work, mom must stay home and homeschool the kids. So if you're single, divorced, widow, childless spouses, all of that is seen as abnormal. But I have, like, interesting news for you. Like, this idea of mom, dad, 2.5 kids, dad works, mom stays home is only in the post-industrial West. Like, this would never work in an agrarian society, which is basically the entire Bible. And it doesn't work among the poor, and it certainly doesn't work in single-parent homes. And he gives these examples. We say, these are our cultural preferences. But then we say, well, that's the biblical model. That's how the Bible would have you do it. So I want to be very clear. I'm not saying be hyper-feminine or hyper-masculine or nationalistic, though there are disclaimers on that one. Or having a stay-at-home mom who homeschools her kids is bad. None of that is bad. None of that is bad. We just baptized Mario. Y'all know Mario. That guy is yoked. I mean, he's manly, man. He likes killing what he cooks. He also cries and he prays for his wife and all. Like, there is nothing wrong with being hyper-feminine, hyper-masculine. And I also want to remind you all, there was a time when men wore high heels and makeup and wigs, and that was considered masculine. So you're, you're just constantly having a moving target on all this. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Mamas, if you stayed home and homeschooled your kids because you felt like that was best for your family, great. I love that. 
What is wrong that Tim Keller would argue, and I would agree with him, is when we say those preferences are the natural result of a faithful biblical reading. Then we say these preferences are what make you accurate in the Bible, and anyone who doesn't fit that mold then are assumed wrong. That's the enculturationism. That's what he means by we take our preferences and we say that's what it means to be biblical. And, and I bet y'all can think of examples. Maybe you don't even know it here. Like maybe you're not thinking of now, but think about like the way back, right? Like if you were in the church in the 50s, 60s, 70s, like my, my professor Scott McKnight in Chicago says, I went to a church where faithful people didn't go to the movies. They said biblical people don't go to the movies. He goes, you know what we did? We just went to the next town over and went to the movies. And he was like, Mom, why are we doing this? She's like, well, I want to see the movie, but, but good Christians don't go to the movies. He's like, we don't play poker either. We don't do any of that stuff. Like, I remember the 2000s, there was a huge debate about whether faithful Christians got tattoos. And what was hard for me is none of my family were believers, and my family is, y'all have seen my brother, head to toe in tattoos. Head to toe. My mom's covered in tattoos. My sister-in-law's covered in tattoos. My sister was covered in tattoos, like head to toe. And I remember people being like, well, it's not the biblical way. And they quote some obscure Leviticus passage. I'm like, have you read Leviticus? None of us are obeying. That can't be what it means to be a good man or a good woman. And these cultural preferences masquerading around as an absolute good has turned people away from the church, Tim Keller argues. People are saying, hey, if I can, I, I, y'all, when my parents became believers and I went to church for them, with them for the first time, I remember my brother saying, I'm not sure Ash and I can come because of our tats. And I was like, oh, buddy, no, we've come a long way. Like, I'll get a face tat if it meant you would come. Like, we, we, Martin has a tat. I'm so glad Martin got a tat. That helps me so much with my family. But I started wondering, not so much, like, why do we choose the preferences we choose? Like, I'm not, I'm not this is not going to be a sermon about what is biblical manhood, what is biblical womanhood. This is not going to be a sermon about the biblical family because, y'all, it's weird. I mean, it includes concubines, two wives, you wake up on your wedding day and you marry the wrong sister. Like, that's actually the biblical model for marriage, and we don't want any of that. So... That is not what I'm going to do today. My concern is not the, like, the details of it. My concern is, why do we do this, though? Why do we take our cultural preferences and say, this is the way? Why do we put this yoke upon people and say, hey, the way that we do life is the biblical model, and you, therefore, are out of step? That question, why, thankfully, Tim Keller answered. He, he quotes a guy at length, a guy named Richard Lovelace, Terrible name if you're a theologian. It's technically love lace, but still. And he writes in the dynamics of spiritual life, he argues that the majority of Christians, this is why we do this, because the majority of Christians have a theoretical only understanding that they're saved by grace. It's, it's theoretical only. And rather than being saved by their own righteousness. And he says, functionally and practically, the way we actually live it out, we might be able to assent theologically, oh, I'm saved by grace, but the way it lives, the way it happens in our gut and it lives in our life is that in our day-to-day existence, we rely on our sanctification, our most recent good behavior, to prove to us that we're actually saved. So, so we draw on our past conversion experience. I rang the bell at camp, and I could dunk to me really hard underwater. Like, that's the moment. We rely on that, and then we rely on our most recent religious performance, and all the times we said no to the bad things. He says, rather than people who live day to day saying, I am saved by the finished work of Christ, what comforts me when I wonder if God loves me 
is I look at that moment of conversion and how well am I behaving right now? And he says, what happens then is if your spiritual achievements aren't that great and maybe you keep saying yes to the things that you should be saying no, what happens is they are subconsciously radically insecure. They live in fear. God may not love me. I may not be saved. And their insecurity shows itself in pride and a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and their own criticism of others. Rather than trusting in the finished work of Christ, when we are not sure if God actually loves us, what we do then is we begin to separate ourselves and we say to ourselves, my cultural preferences are evidence that I must be doing something right. And he says they begin to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and to discharge their suppressed anger. They're actually, we're actually angry at ourselves. And instead of dealing with our own anger, we just say this is the way we do it. We don't go to the movies. Those people over there, movie watchers. And the culture is put on, as it were, an armor against self-doubt. So rather than saying, hey, I'm not sure if God loves me. And I'm feeling insecure about my relationship with God. And I'm going to deal with that. We put our cultural preferences on. He says it becomes an armor against this self-doubt. And it be, but he says, but what ends up happening is it becomes a mental straitjacket, which cleaves to our flesh. And we cannot remove it until we begin to trust in the comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. And so he says, listen, enculturation is a normal tendency for a church who's not experiencing gospel renewal. What Tim says is because of the other isms, the individualism, the moralism, the dualism, when the church starts to decline, the enculturationism actually goes up. Because now we're going, something's wrong with it. Why aren't people coming? How come that other church is doing well? How come their social media accounts better? How come this is revival here? Why is this not working here? And rather than looking inwardly and saying, maybe there's something we can do better, God help us, we look out and say, well, those people aren't faithful. There might only be four of us. Before the remnant. And enculturation then goes up and we other people so that we can bolster our sense that we're good people. We're good people. Those people, not good people. Do you see how many tats he had? Not a good person. So, so I want to summarize all this because I know this is heady. He says, when we doubt our salvation, when we rely not on the finished work of Jesus Christ, but instead we're looking at our recent track record and we're not so sure about that track record we create an us versus them category, and us is right, and them is wrong. Am I saved? Well, I'm doing better than that dude with the tats, and he lets his wife wear the pants. I heard her order food for him once. Am I saved? Well, my husband has a home-cooked meal every night, unlike Sally's, because she likes to work. You know, God bless her heart. And I know that sounds crazy, right? I say that out loud, and you're like, I would never think that. Like, I would never be like, oh, because Sally works, like, I'm better than her. I would never think that. However, fear does make us irrational. Like, if culturation is coming from a place of fear, I'm not so sure God loves me. I'm not so sure about my relationship with him. Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do and continue to do the things that I wish I wouldn't do? Like, right, when we do that, Fear takes over and fear makes us irrational. And when you are surrounded by a whole culture who enforces those ideas, that's a really hard thing to combat on your own. If you find yourself in spaces and places where your cultural preference is the biblical one, that would be really hard to, to say. Maybe that's a model, not the model. 
And so like I said, I'm far less concerned with what we enculturate. I'm far more concerned with why we do this. Because we're doing it out of fear. And we're doing it out of a sense of God doesn't love us. And so I want to talk about the antidote for this enculturation. And I believe Ephesians 2, what we read at the beginning, has much to say about this. I think the antidote to why we do this, uh, Paul has something to say to us. So the first thing, if enculturation is brought about because we doubt our salvation, then I have such good news for you. I have such good news for you. Ephesians 2, Paul reminds his audience and us today that, yes, we were once under wrath. We were children of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, he makes us alive in Christ. It says we're saved by grace. If you have the CSB, it has we're saved by grace, exclamation point. Paul goes to great lengths in the beginning of Ephesians 2 to remind his audience about God's role in your salvation. So I'm just going to, all the ways that God is the referent, the author, and the finisher of your faith. These are the phrases that Paul is using in Ephesians 2. It is because of God's richness of mercy, his great love. He makes us alive. He saves us by grace. He raises us with Jesus. He seats us with him. He gives us immeasurable riches of his grace. It's because of his kindness. It's because God wants to give a gift. It's because we are his workmanship and because he prepared beforehand. For all of this to happen. Like, can you really not see it? It's because of God's character, his desire, his will, his future plans, and his past preparation that we participate in this salvation. It is God, 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 all over Ephesians 2. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And therefore, because he can't help himself, he saved you. And yes, you have a part to play. There is one little part in Ephesians 2. It says you are saved by faith. Here it is. Here's your part. Faith. You got one thing to do. One thing to do. You know what God's going to do for you? He's going to make sure that the richness of his mercy is bathed all over you. He's going to make sure that his great love has been demonstrated to you. He's going to make you alive. He's going to save you by his grace. He's going to raise you from the dead. He's going to seat you with him in heaven. And he's going to do it because of the immeasurable riches of his grace. It is because he is kind. It is because he gives good gifts. And because you are his workmanship. That word poema, you'll hear preachers say, it's like poem. You're his poem. No, you're not. The word poema means something he made with his own hands. You are God's handiwork that before you ever took a breath, before your mom ever thought she'd have you, before she was ever trying to be a biblical mother, God wanted to save you because you're his handiwork. What's my point? Resist the urge to ground your salvation in your most recent works of goodness. Resist the urge to ground your salvation by looking around and measuring yourself against others. You are literally told in this passage, it is by grace you have been saved, not by anything you did, so that you can't boast. Am I saved? Well, I'm doing better than Sally. No, Ephesians 2 says you don't get to do that. Instead, Ephesians 2 says it's because of grace that you've been justified, that you've been sanctified, and someday you'll see God face-to-face glorified. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. And all of it is because of God's great love for you. So when you doubt your salvation, please don't look around. Don't look around. Just look up. Look up into the face of the eyes of a father, son, and spirit who planned before you were ever born accomplished before you ever took your first breath, wooed you before you ever repented, 
saved you because of their character, wooed you before you ever understood what he was or is in your life, and they hold on to you because of their great delight, and they're going to put you next to them in heaven because they want you there, and it's all because of the richness of their mercy, goodness, and grace. It is goodness and grace and mercy that I'm begging you, just look up when you doubt your salvation. Don't look around. Look up. Because if you look up, you will be met by far more goodness, grace, and mercy than you can comprehend. And so when you get yourself in this place that says, I'm not sure God loves me. I'm not sure I'm saved. Just look up. Or look at Ephesians 2. Or look at someone who deeply knows God's love in their life. But don't look around. I'm begging you, look up. Because if you look up, you will find a God who loves you so much. When you go, I'm not sure God loves me, and then you behold him, you'll go, oh, that was so silly. He can't help himself. Or if you do look around, just look around at someone who loves you and ask them, does God love me? The first reason that enculturation causes division is because we doubt our salvation. We need, like Paul, to ground our salvation in the character of God and his role in our salvation. The second thing enculturation does is it causes divisions So if the first half of Ephesians 2 is good news, the second half of Ephesians 2 is a challenge for us. If you've ever bought a memorization pack or you've been to Awana's or whatever the, I I didn't grow up in the church, what are other little VBS, whatever. You've been somewhere and they say, we're going to memorize a Bible verse. John 3.16 comes first, which if you've ever watched sports, you already knew about John 3.16, so you're good there. So you're like, I got that one. And then the second one they're going to give you is Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Because it's foundational. They want you to know that you're saved by grace. The problem is we shouldn't end at the end of 9. We should end actually through 10. We should tell people it's by grace you've been saved through faith. But by the way, in verse 10, you were saved for works. So you got work to do. Like you've got a responsibility as a believer. Go out into the world. But really what we should do is push people all the way to verse 22. Because the first half of Ephesians 2 is the why and how we're saved. But the second half is unto what end as a body. What, what is God creating now? For us. Like, yes, we're going to be seated at the right hand. Like, we're going to heaven, and when you're seated with Christ and Him, we've been raised in the heavenly places, but now we got to live together as one body. And that's what Ephesians 2 11 through 22 talks about. Ephesians is a letter written to a church where Jewish men and women are going to worship with Gentile, former Artemis worshiping men and women. And if you want to talk about a clash of two cultures, if you want to talk about cultural preferences, Ephesians would have had it all. Paul has his work cut out for us in trying to bring them united. Gender roles in Jewish families, the father is the patriarch. He holds all the power. In Artemisian worship, women had a lot of power. So now you're talking about families that come in where dad is the final say, and then you've got women coming in who are like, I literally used to be a priestess to a goddess. You're going to have some gender role preferences here clashing. Right? You maybe want to talk about food. Very different diet. You guys understand Leviticus? You used it to say no tattoos, right? So Leviticus has all kinds of rules about what you can and can't eat as a faithful Jew. Did you know Artemis is the goddess of hunting? Those women were out killing hooved animals, killing whatever they want, and eating it. When you're talking about diets, very different. Values could not be more different. And Paul is saying all of you have to come together into one body, is what Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He says, I want to remind you that the work of Christ, it dismantles divisions and hostilities. And your union to each other is actually going to take precedence over your cultural preferences. 
all of you are going to have to lay down your preferences to come together and be united as one body. You're no longer two groups. You're one group. You're one group. And Christ's body made two groups one man, and the result of it is peace. He says it multiple times. He's telling them, you're meant to have peace among you, not us versus them and culturation. Instead, you're supposed to say, despite our differences, because of Christ, because of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we are, in fact, one. We have one Father, one Savior, one Spirit, and you're being built together into one temple. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one. One. And if this is the reality Christ created, then our differences actually make our unity even more beautiful and precious in a world full of hatred and division. The world does hatred and division just fine. Just fine. Shouldn't we be a haven from it? Shouldn't this be a place where you come in and maybe the way that you view certain cultural preferences, they're a little different, but you're not going to be shouted down as if you're not faithful in this space? So if you're like me, maybe you're an aggressive woman, or maybe you're a kind man. God forbid we can't have room for kind men. But if you're like me, and you've been told you're not quite right for the church, I want you to hear me loud and clear. It's the same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you that's dwelling inside of me. That's dwelling in Mart and Linnell and Ora Lee and in Tashara and Mario, who was yoked, and, and Karen, who's not here, and on and, like, and on and on we go. Same God. And so please do not be burdened to conform to whatever the, the church's cultural view of manhood and womanhood is. Like, please be burdened instead to be conformed to Christ. The only human in whose image we actually bear. Like, we should not be trying to fit some mold of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, but instead we should be saying, Christ, what are you making me to be? Who are you calling me to be? And maybe you don't have mom, dad, 2.5 kids, and it feels like maybe there's something missing here. Like, I want to remind you what he says in the second half of Ephesians 2. You already are a part of God's household. And the only conformity that should matter is not that you would take your earthly family and try to push it into the Bible, but you should allow the Bible that says you belong to God first and foremost, and you should push that back into your earthly family. So that means whether you're single, divorced, widowed, no kids, with kids, whatever that means, it should look a whole lot like what God's families want to look like. And you should make sure your patriotism, like I'm going to go to a park this week and we're going to light off fireworks and I'm sure my brother will be wearing trunks that have an American flag on it. Great, whatever. I don't care what y'all do for the fourth. Please be safe. Please be safe. But if your patriotism is greater than what Paul says to us in the second half of Ephesians 2, that we are fellow citizens and saints together, if your Americanism is greater than being a kingdom of God with the whole global church, then allow Ephesians 2 to conform you into a kingdom for person first. Enculturation is strong. I picked some straw men. I think one of the beautiful things about St. Jude, you had me from the beginning. If you're a strong woman, you've probably felt welcome here. I've been on this stage from the jump. I picked some straw men. Right? I did. You're like, well, we don't really have that problem here. Like, we have a single woman pastor. We got Mart, who's a little bit of an empty nester. He's odd. We've never felt any need to conform to any sort of hyper-masculine. Like, he's not even loud. Like, we had the youth over at our house, and we were playing this game called Wavelengths, and it was, like, loud and quiet. And somebody gave the, the clue, Martin Vaughn. And the youth were like, is he loud or is he quiet? And one of them said, well, when he talks about Santa Fe, he's loud. And I was like, well, good luck with that one. So I, I picked some straw men, right? I, I, like, 
But the reality is, is whatever it is, whatever the enculturation is, this is what makes me feel like I'm a better person than that person. And these are my cultural preferences that I'm trying to squeeze back into the Bible so that I can feel secure in my faith. The pull there is strong. And you're going to find yourselves in communities. They could even be online communities. There's a lot of, lot of pull on Twitter, Instagram, and wherever. We want to feel secure. So instead of looking up, we look around, and, and this is what I'm concerned about. It's not that we would leave here and we'd have a better understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood. Y'all, the answer to biblical manhood and womanhood is Jesus. The answer to what a biblical family is, is what is God calling you to be? The answer to patriotism is it has to be subservient to belonging to God. These are all things you can learn from your Bible very quickly. Tattoos are fine if you've been wondering this whole time. But we'll find our things that make us feel better. The pool of enculturation is strong, and I want you to feel secure in your faith. I want that for you. I just don't want you to get it by othering people. Instead, I want you to get it by looking up. And you fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Please don't look around. Look up. And when you look up, he'll probably tell you then to look around and you'll see a bunch of brothers and sisters and fellow citizens of God prepared for you to enjoy now and forevermore. And their differences actually make you better. And you can celebrate that. And so I hope St. Jude or wherever you belong, is a place where whether you're a bold woman, a gentleman, single, widow, divorcee, Ethiopian, disabled, able-bodied, stay-at-home mom, CEO of a company, tats or not, that the only encouragement of conformity you will receive here is that to Jesus Christ. So the visible image of the invisible God. And I want you to know, if you felt like me, where you don't quite belong, you make us better. We need what you have. And so I I hate that you've ever felt that way, but I hope when you come to St. Jude, the only conforming pressure you feel is to that of God, the one who loves you and whose image you're made. And that we will all, when we feel that insecurity, because that's a normal human thing to say, God, do you love me? I feel like we're far right now, that you would not look around, but you would look up and see the face of the one who loves you and made you because he can't help himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for authoring our salvation, Jesus, for accomplishing it in spirit, for applying it. It's the entire triune operation that we are, in fact, saved. And you go to such great lengths to tell us that you want us, you desire us, that you hold on to us, that you pursue us, that when we leave, you leave the 99 and you run after us, that you desire to bring us home, that when we went into exile, you knew we wouldn't return, so you went into exile again. Like, you're screaming at us, I love you. But there's a world that shouts loud too. So would you help us to hear your voice? And when we do feel insecure about our faith, would you help us to run to you or to those who are clinging to you so that we will be brought home? Help us to fight the need to be conformed to anything other than what you're making us to be. And for those who have felt like they just don't belong, Lord, would you help them to feel like they belong here? Would you help them to feel like they have a home here? Because you love them and they make us better. Bless my friends this morning. Allow this truth to sink into us. We ask all of us in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. If you all stand, we'll sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below.
praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Coming to this table this morning is an opportunity to practice this idea of looking up. If you need encouragement that God loves you, don't look around and say, well, I'm better than Nika. Just look at the cross. Be reminded of all that God has done for you to ensure that you know that you're loved and saved and kept for a day that's coming. And it's a joy to share this meal with each other. Not because we're conforming all of us to be like each other, but instead it's in our differences that there's real beauty and goodness in this meal. And so my hope for you all as you come forward, if you place your faith in Jesus and you come and take this meal, that you will know that the triune God authored it, accomplished it, and applied salvation on your behalf because he loves you. Because he loves you. And so as you come forward and you need that encouragement, look up. Look up and be reminded of how much God loves you. St. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I deliver to you what I first received, that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at St. Jude, do we have a prayer team this morning? We do. Great. We have a prayer team this morning. So the prayer team will come forward first. The way we serve uh, communion at St. Jude is we take the gluten-free bread and we dip it into the grape juice. And by doing that, it signifies first and foremost that we belong body and soul to the triune God. And then by sharing a cup, it signifies we belong to each other, that the two have become one. And so we delight in sharing that cup. Brooks, if you'll come down, or do you want to hang with Jude? Oh, you come? Okay, yeah. Brooks will come down front. We'll have the prayer team come through first, and we'll serve them, and then we'll start with the back rows, and you guys will come forward and take and eat. But my hope and encouragement for you all this morning is that this meal will be a reminder of all the heavy lifting God did for you in your salvation. You just have to say yes. So say yes and come forward. Let me pray for it, and then we'll serve you all. Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation, and that is what it is. It is a gift. And it is so hard to receive gifts. It really is. We feel like we have to be worthy for them. We feel like we have to reciprocate them. We feel like we have to do something. And God, that's not a gift. And so would you remind us that this gift is an invitation to say yes to all you've done for us. Would you bring us to a point of security in our love for you? And more than that, we're secure in your love for us. Bless my friends this morning in this meal. Nourish them, strengthen them, encourage them. And we ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.